0: Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting late on June eleventh, 2008. I'm Steve Mirsky. This week on the podcast, a conversation with film director M. Night Shyamalan. I know, right? Anyway, he has a new movie opening on Friday the 13th called The Happening, starring Mark Wahlberg and John Leguizamo. Scientific American editor George Musser went to a preview of the movie in a press conference with the director. He later interviewed M. Night by phone, and we'll hear that. First up, though, George talking to me about the movie. We were at a book party for our fellow Siam editor Mark Alpert and found a relatively quiet corner.
1: M. Night is really... Toying with a lot of ideas about what is the limit of rational thought in the film. He actually his protagonist in the film is a science teacher, biology teacher, who talks at the very beginning about colony collapse disorder. And this is the bees, is the problems the bees are having. Exactly, the disappearance of the bees, and it's unexplained at this point. And he makes a point that there are certain what he calls acts of nature. That's distinct from acts of God, but they're acts of nature that science has yet to understand, and he's making a point that scientists need to be humble in the face of the uncertainty of nature. He probably then takes it a little bit too far for my taste. It's one thing to be humble, but it's another thing to say that science will never come up with an explanation for those things. So the rest of the film really goes through that. There's The whole disaster, apocalyptic disaster in which the film is based is held also to be an act of nature, something that's just inexplicable, nature striking back at man. I compare it to really the birds meets Village of the Damned, or the birds meets uh, Day of the Triffids. It's that kind of plot. I won't spoil it for, for people. The idea is that plants emit some kind of neurotoxin that causes people to stop walking, become paralyzed and confused, and then to kill themselves. So there's something in the environment that causes us to, to take our own lives. Actually, I, I think that plant exists. It's, it's called tobacco. Possibly, yes, yes. There are times when organisms do cause us to behave, diseases for example, in a way that causes us to kill ourselves like rabies would do or I'm sure there are other diseases as well that alter our behavior such as to cause us basically to kill ourselves or put ourselves in danger. What's that thing with with cats? There's a
0: very famous example with um, insects where, uh, I'll get the details, but uh, there's a particular insect that ordinarily will will stay close to the ground, will not go up to the tops of blades of grass and when it gets infected with a certain parasite its behavior changes so that it seeks the highest ground which makes it much easier for birds to ingest it and then the birds wind up spreading the parasite the parasite does all that behavioral modification for its own benefit.
1: Yeah and the, the, the film is really postulating that the whole environment, the whole ecosystem might have that effect on humans as kind of a backlash or a back reaction against our destruction of the environment.
0: Uh, Any other things in the film that really caught
1: your eye as a science person? There's a whole issue about our survival instinct and how that can be turned against us in the film. And I think that does really happen. People have very odd attitudes toward risk. They'll happily smoke while eating organic food things like that, or they don't want a nuclear power plant next to them, but they'll get in their car instead and, and not to wear their seatbelt. So, in a sense, our survival instinct is always being turned against us. So, though not in such an extreme way as in the film, it just kind of happens in miniature day in, day out, and that, re- that really struck me as well.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, the same... Uh the same genetics that may be very useful in a particular environment can become totally detrimental in an altered environment.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. We have to take those ten kind of things case by case. But the broader point about our the fact that we sometimes act against our own survival imperative, we do things that were we really thinking, we would say, my God, how stupid am I? I'm actually advancing my demise. Just a few minutes ago, I was eating bacon. And I thought, as I eat each piece of this bacon, I'm shortening my statistical lifespan by five minutes, let's say. But damn, it was good, and I ate four of them.
0: I checked, and the parasite I was thinking about is the Lancet liver fluke. I had a detail wrong. The ant gets eaten by grazing animals, not birds, to spread the parasite and complete its life cycle. George and M. Night Shyamalan spoke by phone the afternoon of June 11th. Here's that conversation.
1: So one of the things, actually, I had brought up this question in the press conference as well. Um, I wanted to ask you about where are your thoughts on the limits of science? That's clearly something on the on your mind It comes out in the very beginning of the
2: film and kind of toward the end of the film as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing is, you know, we have only the uh, our own invented categories in which to judge things. And so we say, okay this thing that we're looking at which cat- which of our eight categories or however many number we call it you know does it fit in well you know and the things that don't quite fit in we shove into something but you know we're inventing we're inventing those categories so it's very very limited i mean this it's also like you know psychologically if you're looking for something in your data you'll see it you know so so if you like doing an experiment you're looking for Reproduction patterns, and you go, oh, there it is! I see it. You know, you can see it in there. In that same way, if you're if you're going, there's always an explanation that we have already, and at our fingertips, you're going to find some way to put it in there. But there's so much unexplained stuff. I mean, I don't even quite understand the scientific explanation of the placebo effect, which is in every everybody's reports. You know, it's there, but that's science now. It's like, the fact that the placebo effect exists is a fact, but what is it? We have no, we have no idea, and that's the phenomenon. I love that. I even love that with regard to home court advantage. <laughs> yeah. Like, what is that? If anything, you have more pressure, you know. And yet, it's it's something about a, 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 a connected to a belief system. Both things, the placebo and the home court effect, are are a belief system that so we can turn thought into energy into actual biological function, which is that's in and of itself that's something that science says is not possible.
1: You know, it's really interesting. That you say that because I think most people, if you just stop them on the street, would say science has always got the answers to things. And yes, stop most scientists in their laboratories; they would say the exact opposite: how little they know about the world. Exactly, science is an act of humility. And I think you had Elliot say something very similar to that.
2: Right. Oh, that's such a great line. Science is an act of humility. Did you
1: see some of these acts of nature? I mean, you brought up, for instance, in the film, the red tide and the colony collapse. Are are they? always going to be beyond our capacity to explain
2: it'll either get thrown into some tentative tenuous explanation or it'll be be thrown into the pile of the placebo effect okay it's fact but we have no idea we're just going to pretend about that one there was another one i was just thinking of as we spoke of oh you know how animals like the when the tsunami came the animals all ran before the tsunami kind of sensing sensing it happening so what is it that's in their primitive (laughs) we'll call it primitive you know, biological makeup that we've forgotten. It would seem that that would be quite an asset for a species to have what they have. You know, we don't have that, and yet we're supposed to be the higher functioning. What? Is, so what? What happened there? What is that? So we don't even understand that. What is it about in, to the intuitiveness of animals to sense? Is it some microscopic shift in the in the atmosphere that they're they're sensing, or is this just like my knee hurts, it's going to rain kind of thing? I don't know. Is there? There, what is it exactly? But there's so many of those, like, you know, kind of amazing things that tie us to each other that make us all one system. I mean, the thing, I think the, the main thing about the movie is that we're pretending we're not part of a system.
1: Yes. You said you uh, had drawn inspiration from Einstein's uh, recent biography of Einstein, the Isaacson biography. Yeah. What were some of the things you pulled out from that and tried to instill
2: into what you did? I guess it's, it's the same type of thing that, you know, I. I get that feeling of what drives you to that. There's an there's an answer for seven things, and it's one answer. You know that kind of the beauty of simplicity. The beauty of uh, and what that what is the beauty of simplicity? That is that there's there's some there's something that binds everything. You know, and to keep looking for that 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 drive is is almost the holy grail. And I I, I totally get that on an intuitive level. You know. Of and is, and that is somehow tied to some mystical thing. I don't know if "mystical" is the correct word, but it's uh, it's beyond logic. You know, it's the it's the evidence that uh, you know all things come from one one simple thing. Yeah, yeah. It's
1: interesting because certainly fundamental physics, as, as Einstein practiced, is always at that boundary between physics and metaphysics. You could put it, or the mystical and the
2: and the material. Yeah, what was that whole thing he was struggling with, which you know, the quantum of it all, you know, that they, you know, that whole I forgot. I'm, 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 you know, I have a very light, light handle on all the subject, but the sense of when he said God doesn't roll the dice, that kind of thing, you know, where it's it, it's random where where a thing is. You know what I'm talking about?
1: Yeah, it's just in quantum mechanics you've got that kind of irreducible randomness.
2: Yeah, so he doesn't like that and I don't I don't like that either. At the end of the day, the last thing can't be random. That was Einstein's point of view and I think some people wonder whether that was right or
1: whether there is this kind of randomness that we'll never be able to explain that's inherent in the world.
2: Yeah, I mean that's that that would be counter to at least our primitive understanding.
1: It's interesting what you said about the the beauty of simplicity because I think you almost had that in, embodied in the character of the math teacher. And, you know, face with death, he, and inevitable death, as you drive through Princeton, he tries to bring
2: that out in his fellow passengers in the car. Yeah, exactly, just talking about how amazing that is, that, you know, we think of it as a small thing, but the the, the principle of doubling, in, in a very short order, makes it, you know, an incredible magnitude. But just that general idea, I was so struck by as I watched the film, of, here they are, they're
1: about to die, and... focus on and give their death some nobility they went back
2: to the the math problem the beauty of simplicity yeah exactly i told you know john when he was doing that scene that he's just you know you know he sees he sees beauty in 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 those numbers and math he's always found kind of awe at it at at, you know there's the great satisfaction that comes from that to under to understand that wow you do this this and this and it comes out to that it it's amazing and he, it's the thing that's driven him and it makes him connect with Elliot, you know, who sees that in science. That's why they're so close. And then he's in that room and he just wants to, one thing, and just say, this is, this is my joy, what I see, and this is the joy of life for me. And just one more time, just teach one more kid that joy.
1: Oh, right. Because there's also the teaching aspect of it I hadn't grasped until now.
2: Yeah. Now,
1: obviously, a lot of people, as they come away from the film or as it will be depicted in the press, will talk about the environmental. Issues that are here. And clearly the whole plot revolves around around that. But I wanted to ask you almost from a, a deeper level, in a sense, there's this breakdown of survival instinct. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is at the, the core of what it is. And I'm struck in the, in the real world that we live in, there's also sometimes this breakdown of our survival instinct. We do things that are not in our own survival interest. Right. There's the classic example of someone smoking in an organic food restaurant. Uh, but, <laughs> but it's also like your attitudes toward risk, and that comes out in right. in how the government is not approaching global warming, for example. Right, right. And again, there is our survival instinct very much in play, and
2: it's not acting the way you think it would. Right, right. That's true. I mean, that you could have you know you could give uh, mitigating factors for each of those. Um, you know, the survival instinct is really kind of a. It's somehow ingrained in us if we if we understand it, you would think i mean there's maybe there's a a gut version of that and and an intellectual version of that, and the intellectual version of it fails us all the time, so we smoke in an organic food restaurant um it just fails us, you know the intellect part of it so yeah all all our a lot of our instincts have kind of flipped because you know it's not like we're running out to to go you know hunt a deer down to for the dinner you know as or an animal down there it's just you know we we have it readily available and so the body's instinct to store carbs is now turning against us. And so everybody's obese, you know. It's, uh, it, it just, but you can't turn it off. You can't call, we're always going to have food. Stop, stop triggering that thing. You just crave and crave. That's why everybody, kids are always like, how come we, we always want the, the bad things? You know, why can't we want the vegetables, you know, and not the, the causes that we body doing that from an old, old habit of trying to store as much fat as possible. So it's, it's like that a little bit that it's flipped. But, you know, when I was thinking about what, could you do to the human species, you know, if you were if you were fed up with it, or the odd species is you know the, the very basic thing of the survival instinct gets turned off.
1: I actually have a copy of that Sapolsky article I mentioned to you earlier, and there's actually mm-hmm. a quote here that ties into the zoo scene of the film. Wow. Uh, and I'll just quote the article. This is akin to someone getting affected with a brain parasite that generates an irresistible urge to go to the zoo, scale a fence and try to French kiss a polar bear. <laughs> but actually, there are these parasites in nature that subvert and even turn the survival instinct against the uh, the, the animal. No, oh, that's amazing. So it's a parasite. That's right, and in this case, it affects rodents and, and takes away their fear of cats. Wow, that's fascinating. One of the, going back to the environmental themes, is that there's this kind of backlash, this natural backlash against, against humanity in the film. Right. And it strikes me that, of course, in reality, there's always a sense of a of backlash. Life is much more precarious than we sometimes give it give it credit for. And civilization right. is always more
2: precarious. Did, was that also kind of been kicking around in your mind? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I find the only times that we see ourselves correctly, like right now I'm on, you know, the highway on in, in Manhattan and there's a million of us and it all seems all very important we're all where we're going, you know. You know, this seems like, you know, and there's some trees lining this road here that we're on here. I think we're on West Side Highway. Um, but, you know, really the moment that you feel accurate with regard to our importance in the world is like when you're out in the ocean and you get a little too far out. You know, you're floating out there and you get a little bit of a pang and then you look around and it's so far out and you, you thought you were in the same place but the ocean has pulled you another, you know, 50 yards out. And, and you're out there and you feel vulnerable and, and, you know, those are the tiniest moments in your life that you actually feel correct relationship with nature. As, as, as when people are in a giant storm or, you know what I mean? Those moments. It is precarious and it reminds us, you know, those are the moments that we go back to kind of the Native American point of view of, of nature and go, oh yeah, you remember those silly, simple folk? They're right! <laughs> What you mentioned also in the press
1: conference, you had done research as you were writing the script and talked to people about the plausibility of the, the whole concept. Can you describe yeah. a bit more of that, that research that you had gone
2: through? Well, it was about the plant. I mean, I have to go back and look at the specifics, but it was about the plant, the plant mechanisms, and what how they how they react to threats, and that they are proactive, and that they evolve do 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 have have evolved incredibly complex systems to deal with problems, and that they've acted in a way that seems proactive sometimes with regard to threats like you know the cotton cotton field um when it's getting attacked by a parasite on one side will send out a signal to the other side of the field to um tell it in advance that it's getting attacked and that you should put out the chemical for uh predators in advance it's it's an amazing kind of communication system and then also yeah the idea this plausibility of could it be possible that everything is reacting you know and I said, that would only work if they were all communicating, and is that possible? And then that came back hugely the
1: case. One thing that really struck me also about the film was, was really the ending, or maybe just the immediate pre-ending. Three months had passed, I, I think it was, and it was almost as though life had gone back to normal. Yeah. Was that because, in, in your in your conception of this, that people
2: had ignored that signal? or Yeah, that there was enough ambiguity to let it go, you know? So, um you know, much as we, you know, we, everybody just goes back to their thing. As long as you give them an out to go back to their lives, they'll take the out. You know, so I need, I need at least passive, passive, least resistance. So if you tell me it's probably the government, well, you know, or it was a nuclear leak, if that was possible, I'm just going to go to that, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to keep it at that. But sense also, right? yeah, I mean, there's a, you know, to make a a, a change on that scale, we that we would have to make if that, that was happening would be. I don't know if we would be capable of doing that without even more pain.
1: What kind of changes do you think it would have entailed, at least within the kind of fictional universe?
2: Yeah, I mean, it would take an, a complete eradication of uh, what it is that large populations do, you know, how they're affecting the environment. What is it about the understanding of, like, you know, is there in a collective energy that we're giving off? You know, why Why do plants grow when you sing to them? You know, all, all all those kind of questions. Do you give off an energy? Is is energy even a valid way of communicating, you know? <clears throat> uh, you know, and it's not a new-agey thing, but a, a real thing, you know? So it would provoke some kind of introspection about those kinds of effects we're having on nature. Yeah, you start to get ba- back to, a, again, the correct hierarchy of thinking about, about our relationship with nature, like, again, the Native American thing, which I think is
1: the correct one. What role do you think science would play in that kind ca- Really, would play in that kind of transformation
2: that would occur. Well, we'd have to put on, you know, uh, measurements and say, yeah, you know, at uh, you know, at this point, we, you know, I guess it would come down to the same type of things we're talking about now, about emissions and things like that, and try to label it and try to go, well, well, what do we, what are we allowed? Is it is it right to have four million cars on this road right now? You know, rather than public transportation and all that stuff.
1: But ultimately, you would be optimistic that we could work it through, just if if we had
2: the will to do so. Yeah, you know, there's this kind of uh my wife was telling me or someone was telling me recently about kind of farms where they're self sustaining, you know, like this fancy new idea of self sustaining, you know, and I was like, You mean like the way we used to be? (laughs) It's like you know, it's just like, Yeah, you grow what you what you can eat, you know what I mean? And what's extra you give to the community, you know, like you know, you do that thing, not more than that. You know, there's if we if we went back to that a little bit, it would be uh we get back into harmony, you know, it's like they don't mind us being here. Uh, as long as we're not taking advantage of the situation.
1: But do you think we could sustain an industrial modern civilization or would we have to go back to sort of a, a simpler...
2: More rural thing? Yeah. You know, that's a that's a good question. I mean, you know, you'd have to, if you if you really thought about, I, I need to make this, the only way I can make it is out of plastic, is this the appropriate thing? You know what I mean? can we you know we'd have to rethink everything a little bit with regard to am, with uh, i am i hurting my family can you make something that can go back to nature and things like that you know if not then we can't build that thing yeah these are kind of in, in microcosm
1: issues that our whole planet will be facing in the next 50 years or so
2: every single thing every single choice will be evaluated through the matrix of how is it affecting the the, the group
1: do you think you'll explore those same ideas in, in future films
2: well, I don't know about those same exact ideas, but definitely when I was doing the research, I got, you know, the science, uh, is such a fun, fun kickoff point for, uh, larger issues. Cause it does have that almost kind of base, you know, a true story, based on a true story, you know, feeling to it. And you really can, you know, take it one more step and just kind of take take it to a nightmare situation and then wake everybody up kind of feeling. I definitely, I definitely have a couple, um, things noodling around in my head now.
1: Cool. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to hearing about them.
2: Cool.
1: Anyway, I'm glad you could take the time out. Uh, Thanks, man.
0: Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, the Mars Phoenix lander is having trouble doing experiments on the soil because it's clumping more than expected. Story two, if you like garlic and also want its health benefits, jars of minced garlic have just as much good smelly stuff as fresh cloves do. Story three, a genetic propensity for what we call attention deficit disorder, may actually have been beneficial under different living conditions. And story four, at the game between the Kansas City Royals and the New York Yankees at Yankee Stadium Monday the 9th, the biggest cheer before an A-Rod homer in the 7th went to an impedance of photons. Time's up. Story four is true. It was in the high 90s with scorching sunshine at the stadium Monday afternoon. I was there, and as newspaper accounts verified, the crowd's biggest cheer in the first six innings was for a small lone cloud that actually put the ballpark in shade. When the sunshine returned a few seconds later, it got roundly booed. Story three is true. Genetics associated with what we consider to be attention deficit disorder may have actually been an advantage for nomads. That's according to a study just out in the journal Biomed Central Evolutionary Biology. For more, tune in to the upcoming Friday, June 13th episode of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. And story one is true. The Mars lander has tried to get soil into its oven for baking and chemical analysis, but the soil refuses so far to disintegrate into fine enough particles to fit through the oven's opening. The good news is that the clumpiness may be due to the presence of water. All of which means that story two about bottles of minced or chopped garlic being just as helpful as fresh cloves is totally bogus. Because fresh garlic maintains higher levels of the compound allicin than does the bottled kind, which is usually stored in water or oil. Studies have shown that allicin may help prevent blood clots and bacterial infections. In research published in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry, extracts of garlic stored in water lost half its allicin in six days. Garlic in vegetable oil lost half its allicin in under an hour. Stink about it. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. Visit Siam.com for the latest science news, our own little movies, and slideshows. And sign up for the Daily Digest at Siam.com slash daily. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.